0: Welcome to the parlor featuring conversations with rhetoricians where we talk about rhetoric. We have a very special episode for you today where we talk with Jose Cortez. In this episode I talk with D Jose Cortez, a professor at the University of Oregon. Jose Cortez has his main interest in critical theory, rhetoric, Latinx studies, and Latin American studies in general, and has written many pieces. But today we'll be specifically asking Jose Cortez about his piece of exterior and exception, Latin American rhetoric, subalternity, and the politics of cultural difference. In addition, you'll be hearing voices from Awab Ehlund and Matthew Heidman. Let's turn it over to Matthew Heidman to kick it off for us.
1: Uh, I think I think I speak for our, our group when I say we can't thank you enough for taking the time out to speak with us. This is, this is awesome. Thank you
2: again for inviting me. Seriously, I'm, I'm very happy to be here.
1: All right, our first question, um, I guess just kind of uh, kind of break the ice kind of situation. Uh, we want to know what inspired you to get into research about the topics of uh, the relationships of Eurocentrism and Latinx. Um, you know, I, I should say
2: that a lot of this uh, is kind of a personal thing for me. Uh, my, my dad's from Mexico, and uh, my mom is from, my mom was born in Kentucky, and so, um, you know, I've, I've grown up at the, at the confluence of um, what some people kind of call a third space where cultures meet, and, you know, it's interesting, uh, my mom, she did some a study abroad in Mexico in college, you know, she's a fluent Spanish speaker. She does translation work for child uh, unaccompanied minors in Washington state. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of this has to do with um, my interest in kind of like the incomplete archive of my life. You know, when I think about archives, I think about, you know, an archive is a composing practice. It's how you write things like memories, how you create memory and, you know, being a part of the diaspora, that archive is not super complete for me. And so, I, I, you know, I've, I think I've always had this kind of personal quest to get the final answer about where I'm from and, you know, my, my cultural background and heritage. But the condition of diaspora is that that's, that's a that train has passed kind of thing. Um, those answers are always going to be written and then rewritten and relived. And so I think that's where my interest in rhetoric comes from, how we write memories, how we reconstitute and recreate them as we write them. And that kind of, uh, you know, being inspired by that lack of, again, never really being able to get the final answer, you know, being driven by logocentricity to have, you know, the right answers. Um, and so, you know, when I got to grad school, I really saw those questions being asked, um, in Latin American studies and in the folks that I studied with at Arizona, like Damian Baca. Um, and uh, then to begin, you know, asking like, well, you know, what, a, what what does a rhetoric or rhetorical practice in Latin America look like? Um, and at that point, um, and I think to this day, that question is still uh, very much open for debate. Um, So yeah, that's kind of, kind of like the personal and like scholarly background for that.
1: Cool. So, um, all right, kind of a follow up on that, we kind of had a rough uh, estimation. We we kind of put together a thesis for what we kind of encapsulated your article. It was a little bit late in, in the writing. But on um, uh, we picked out a sentence uh, quote, "If we continue the, to think Latin American sub subalternity as signifying a non representational and or non hegemonic alternative to the West, then it will remain a very the very obstacle to critical reflection that it was developed to facilitate. Would you agree that it kind of facilitates your argument that?
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Shortly after, well, on page 140, you start with a few examples of uh, other writers' interpretations of this kind of line of thought. Um, what do you kind of see as the kind of largest value of these perspectives in the, write- in the paper? So, okay, so are you asking specifically
2: how I'm – how I'm looking at how other folks yes. uh, are, are looking at this question about subalternity in Latin America. Uh, okay, yeah. so I should say that when I started to do, uh, when I started to read about the other folks uh, in rhetorical studies who are writing about Latin America, um, I, start, I started to notice that the basic or general premise is that um, Latin America is not Europe. Um, and the, the, the way that the, maybe what that idea is premised upon is that, um, Latin American subjects are people who are mixed. Um, and, you know, via that mixture, in racial and cultural miscegenation sort of impurify the like imperial, like power knowledge, um, uh, that that European coloniality brought you know with it um, folks like Walter Mignolo argue and I think he's right that coloniality happens kind of like hegemony does I, the way that I understand is that hegemony is a name for a kind of power that acts um, you know through culture and is not transmitted by the like threat of violence but is' is kind of a, a kind of power that gets us to consent to being governed through cultural means. Uh, the example that I use with my own students that I think works well is, um, y'all familiar with the Elf on the Shelf? Yes. Um, the Elf on the Shelf is something that teaches us to learn to love surveillance from a very young age. It normalizes surveillance, right? That like kids learn that, um, you know, I, if I adjust my behavior, Santa will award me at the end of the year and it's kind of, um, you know, encapsulated into this creepy elf that parents move around so that, you know, children believe that this thing is alive. And, you know, then we grow up thinking that, you know, being surveilled is it's totally normal because we haven't known otherwise. Um, and Walter, M- to bring this back, I, you know, Mignolo argues that the way that that colo- one of the ways that colonial power happens um, is through, uh, alphabetic literacy. Um, you get people to, to privilege, uh, the, you know, the, the Western alphabetic systems as the mode of like, um, building what, um, let's see, as the mode of, as a privileged mode of communication. And if you take that away from people, then you dehumanize them, right? So if you go to Latin America, Coloniality goes to Latin America, notices they don't have literacy, they only have orality. Oh, these people, um, uh, uh, we, we then have a divine right to kind of colonize and set these, these I'm just going to use this word in context, savages, like set them straight to civilize them. So Manuel argues that it is like the literacy that carries the colonial mission. Um, and then I begin to notice that folks seem to just kind of be inverting that. Um, that if if we want to do justice to what rhetoric in Latin America looks like or is, you know, the 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 disciplinary response has kind of been l- like, well, let's study these folks on their own terms or on their own words or without any of the sort of colonial lenses, right? Let's get to a, a, a let's get to kind of a this pure non-Western Latin American mode of rhetorical theory. What would that look like without Is it possible, I guess the question is, to look at other communities and study other communities um, without the lenses of, like, Eurocentricity that, like, we bring forward with knowing. My argument is that Eurocentricity might be baked into knowing, and that that might not necessarily be possible. Um, Another question that's, that's driving this is, you know, like, uh, uh, We'll notice that folks in the field are like, we need to study rhetoric on its own terms um, and develop ideas about power that are not European, non-Western, right? And my question that I I don't really have an answer for yet, but I'm thinking through is, is this different than hegemony theory? Um, Because uh, again, Mignolo argues that hegemony theory was developed in Europe Um, It it describes power as it happened in Europe, but it can't really give us any like explanatory power for how colonial, coloniality happened. And um, I'm, you know, I'm just wondering, is that just hegemony theory in Latin America? Or is it like a truly non-Western, you know, non-European mode of asking questions? And again, to me, that's kind of still up in the air right now.
3: Cool. Awesome. Awesome. So it seemed that you definitely you delved into Eurocentrism a little bit, and lo and behold, the next section we're going to talk about is Eurocentrism. Blue, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So my first question for you is: um, So, my my Nola also sees zero, the quote-unquote zero point of Western philosophy as the moment when the West defined itself against the other. You describe the separation between the West and the non-West of the narrative, and you, can, and you say that this narrative would become the conceptual engine and epistemological justification for European globalization. How does the story have such profound implications for the way we understand and treat Amerindian people? And what might an alternative story look like?
2: Yeah, so uh, I think this looks, I think this might look a bit more palatable, if you will, Uh, to us, if we ask things like, why do in philosophy classes, um, and I'm not just going to pick on philosophy, uh, why do in, you know, up until very recently, you know, undergraduate programs in rhetorical studies, uh, and, you know, maybe like, uh, since I work in an English department, I I can kind of like, uh, jab at my own disciplinary standing right now why is it that what's considered art, why is it that what's considered philosophy, why is it that what's considered rhetoric, and you know, capital R and all of those terms, um, why is what's represented represented to be literature with a capital L, um, only being, when we, when we're in literature classes, why do we only read uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, why do we only read uh, why do we only get this perspective about what that is from a very small set of uh, subjects? Um, and uh, if you look at maybe some, I'm going to pick some low-hanging fruit here. If you look at a movie like Apocalypto, which kind of helps, have you either of you seen that?
3: I want to say no.
2: <laughs> it's like Mel Gibson's look at like what indigenous People in uh, what was then Mesoamerica looked like before civilization got here, right? He depicted them as like these bloodthirsty savages colonizing their own people with these bloodletting rituals, and it's just super, you know, it's 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 racist. Um, and it that kind of get, when I mean that gaze that he's bringing with it to, you know, to depict indigenous peoples, even though he's using indigenous actors, um, is this long standing belief, uh, you know, in this long standing presupposition in like philosophy um, that politics and humanity and civilization was born in Europe. Um, and the ideas that we have about that uh, carry forward with how we should be running things today. So if the, if the folks who, who, who got to the shores of wherever they might've landed first in Latin America um, believed that uh, indigenous peoples don't have philosophy, they don't have literacy, and therefore they also don't have politics, then they also had the belief, um, whether it was like manifest destiny and you know, in a similar context in the United States, that they have the like divine right to rule these people and mm-hmm. i think that's what i mean when i'm kind of talking about hegemony is that like before people commit violent acts they have to they 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 have some beliefs about what they're doing um yeah. i don't and necessarily
3: also, sorry go ahead you, sorry yeah and i was just going to say they have beliefs about um what they're doing and they also have beliefs about um who these people are that they're committing violence against because that also you know because you know people do things for reasons and so like you would have to have some kind of pre, um, some kind of assumptions about these people or beliefs um, before you even try to do that and I think you were getting to that in your um, uh, what's it called in your in your paper <laughs> and I thought that was very interesting because um, how we like rhetoric is deeply ingrained in systems like systems of belief that manifest and like you know just the art of rhetoric and so when you mean violence um, against these people you mean violence in all sense right like intellectual physical emotional mental um i think it's really interesting that there's this narrative that is um that was introduced the second that the cook like uh, colonialists like came to Mesoamerica or like Latin America and like the Americas and started to create and it, it, this narrative emerged from a European idea of like hegemony and like trying to like assert dominance. Right? No.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 this civil that literacy instruction might always be loaded with like a civilizing mission. That mm. why we that. Va- it's interesting that when we say, like, knowledge is power, what do we really mean? Uh, do we mean so upward social mobility? And the, the, question that, the question is, okay, if that's the representation of indigenous peoples, right, lacking language, therefore lacking civilization and lacking sovereignty, um, then does inverting that, that, that representation change things?
3: reverse inverting that image can only do so much because then what what happens is just, what really matters is, it, it depends on how convincing that inversion is because it has to undo a lot of work. It has to undo a lot of what, a lot of perceptions and presuppositions that people originally didn't like, that these people have already like assimilated into their minds. So that image has to be very powerful, that inversion and has to be repeatedly exposed to these people until that's their new reality. Um, otherwise, I don't think that just representation is enough, which I think is what you are definitely trying to get at in your paper.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, I, 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 um, I appreciate that you bring up that this concept of unlearning which is something that I really wanted to get in this essay as I was writing it, but it's, it, it's, it's, for, it's a different idea. Um, yeah. I think rhetoric can be the art of unlearning um, just as much as it can be the art of say, like inventing arguments and producing them. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now I'm trying to work on a, an idea about rhetorical disinvention, which would be kind of a counterpart to rhetorical invention, but um, you know, I can get that in at a different time. Essentially, that's what mm-hmm. I think subalternity As a conceptual apparatus for those of us thinking about rhetoric could still be this modality of bringing up or dredging up things to be unlearned.
3: Cool. All right. Thank you so much for answering those questions. It was so helpful and so insightful. Um, And so we have been talking about your centrism for a while. um, And so I would like to move to the Latinx identity and the implications of that argument and who will be taking care of that, none other than my good friend, Matthew. <laughs> so he'll go ahead and start with that. Oh,
1: thanks, Um So we're, I guess we're gonna start with Christina Ramirez's uh, work and kind of, I'd like to talk about, uh, I apologize if I, my pronunciation is poor, Mestizaje uh, concept, um, and you kind of say that that, kind of still asserts an inside-outside binary between Western and Latin identities, uh, leaving safely uninterrupted the regime of the logos with, that produces a separation in the West from the non-West. What would her attempt to reformulate Latinx identity look like if she adopted your notion of a subalternity? Mestizaje is this discourse
2: or idea, um, narrative about the um, Racial miscegenation um, in colonial Mexico and then uh, informing identities uh, as they happen today. The idea is that um, when colonizers came over here and began to um, mix with indigenous peoples, uh, a new, uh, a, a different racial, cultural identity arose from that. Um, and I should say that um, there, there was a caste system in colonial Mexico, and there are is like a growing archive of of paintings from painters in that period who were like uh, visualizing this colonial caste system, you know. Like, and the, it's interesting. I know I I begin to notice that um, in one specific painting, it was going through this process of mestizaje or like mixture, right? When you mix a European and an Ambrin uh, uh, Indigenous person, um, you get a Creole or cast, Castizo. And the next group is if you mix a uh, a Castizo uh, with an uh, the first three sets, you you get back to mixing a Castizo with a um, a Spaniard and you're able to like basically it's basically a blood purity discourse that uh, f- like instructions for erasing indigenous blood out of like bloodlines and getting rid of indigenous it's it's a it's a uh, it's kind of visualizing the process of. Um, um, like racial whitewashing. Genocide. Um, but as we know there were also enslaved people from africa in the colonial period that colonizers brought with them who also became integrated into the society and in this in this pa- in this set of paintings once blackness is introduced you never white you never whitewash that out of the out of the bloodline it, it's just more racial casts and mixtures of blackness after that so with indigenous people the logic is you can whitewash that out, but with blackness, that's always it's always there. It's it's and so I noticed that there was a cast in one of these paintings whose name was the No Te entiendo, which in in Spanish means I don't understand you. Subalternity has this currency as a concept of those of an uh, identity who are being like say dominated by an oppressive regime. Um, and again, when Spivak is talking about subalternity, she's looking at, at how philosophers have written about those who are being oppressed, right? And, you know, big names, Karl Marx, Michel Foucault, um, Deleuze, and how they've, you know, tried to write on behalf of um, these like subaltern people. And is looking at forms or, or examples where, if you were to look at things or like try to act or write and think on their behalf, it still wouldn't kind of give you the whole picture of how that's happening. Now, subalternity, uh, as she's thinking about it, is like those folks who are unintelligible, who have no representation and therefore couldn't be given representation. Say like enslaved folks in colonial, In the colonial united states right like um the we are still engaged uh 275 odd years later or so in trying to convince large amounts of people that these are in fact that black folks are in fact people it's not just it's not just about giving a group uh, of people representation because receiving the right to vote, receiving the right to participate in the public sphere hasn't changed um, the apparatus of violence against black folks, the apparatus of violence against migrants in the United States. Um, and so I think Spivak is right in conceptu- in saying that we need to think about this process differently because simply giving somebody representation who doesn't have it is, is kind of a, an, a, a logical impossibility, but in, in also in a practical sense, um, maybe it demonstrates that there's more work to be done.
1: Olaf well, is going to transition a little bit into the, some of the, I guess, more into the subalternity, uh, idea of subalternity and uh, the rhetorical criticism associated. So,
3: Thank you, Matthew. Um, so what does subalternity look like in terms of contemporary Latinx culture? So what does that look like to you? What does that look like to your community?
2: Okay, so I'm taking Spivak's definition word for word and I'll try to unpack it. Um, Spivak defines subalternity as the absolute limit of the place where history is narrativized into logic. And to make sense of this, uh, uh, let's think about history as a practice of writing, you know, a composing practice. And logic, let that represent a kind of, like, like legal system about, like, like uh, a, a kind of, like, power that
3: happens, like... A legal system that guides reason. Yes, there you go. Perfect. And with that definition, would you, like, and with that definition in mind, how does subalternity look like in contemporary Latinx culture or in yep. the Latinx world, the community?
2: Yeah, I want to. I want to say that. Um, uh, so, so Sonia, Dr. Ariano's work, um, Dr. Chavez's work. Um, I, uh, I, I am really in admiration of of their scholarship and have learned a great deal from both of those folks. In the sense that um, they are also, as I see it, ha- are doing good, important, necessarily socially just work.
3: That is, that is perfect. What a great answer! Thank you so much. And so now we are segueing into the final segment of this podcast, and then Matthew is going to finish us off with this last question. Uh, Matthew, go on ahead. Yeah,
1: yeah along the same lines. Um, in general, what's the biggest take you like uh, your readers to leave with on, on in your essay?
2: I'd like my I'd like my readers to to, to know that um, rhetoric can inform the way we think about politics and the possibility for us to organize political communities otherwise than they currently exist. Rhetoric can help us do that work. Um, I know that is really hard to think about spaces in common, spaces of community otherwise than they exist right now. Um, but, this is why I still believe that the work of the humanities is important to this world, that the work of rhetorical theory is not just about like persuasion, which is an important aspect of it, but thinking about the, how the, thinking about the possibilities for how the world might be different tomorrow. And, you know, I, I think that the, I'm not just saying this, I believe this, that, that the students are the, are the, the current College and university students are going to be the stars of this because, um, on behalf of everybody that's that's past that, I'm sorry that the that's the that's the world that we that we've handed down to
0: you. I would just like to say thank you on behalf of the whole team to Jose Cortez for taking time out of his busy schedule to meet with us. Special thanks to Awab Ahmed and Matthew Heidman, the voices you heard here interviewing Jose Cortez. Thank you on behalf of Blake Walker and Tyler Johnson, our behind-the-scenes team. Your podcast was produced and hosted by me, Kamil Riaz. But none of this could have been done without DWRL for making this podcast possible. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers alone and not to the Department of Rhetoric and Writing or the University of Texas at Austin. It's certainly been a pleasure, and until the next episode, thank you for listening.